Well, Happy New Year's, everyone. Uh, whether you're joining us from your home, online, or on TV, welcome to you. If you're watching this message today from one of our physical locations in the Commons or uh, in McCain or in Grace Harbor Creek, I'm just so thrilled that you've joined us uh, in person, in church, to, to start this new year. And, and here we are at the beginning of 2024. Many of you have just come through the annual ritual that we call New Year's resolutions. And so we resolve to work out more and to eat less and to get out of debt and to maintain a more reasonable work schedule, to be more responsible, to treat our spouses better, to spend more time with the kids, to go to church more, less screen time, read more books. You know the drill. And, and we're resolving to make some changes until the arch enemy of resolve comes around. And I think this is the arch enemy, not just of New Year's resolutions, but of our very souls. It's the opposite of resolved. It's distracted. Distraction takes us away from our goals. It takes us away from our life's priorities. It takes us away from walking with Jesus. And we've never been more distracted. Hundreds of cable channels, millions of websites, podcasts on every imaginable subject, the constant pinging of email and text messages on our phones, the allure of checking moment-by-moment -moment updates of other people's lives on social media. These are all competing for our constant attention all day, every day. I like this definition by David McKinley. He says, distraction is the temptation to give the focus and energy needed for something highly important to something that is often quite insignificant. I don't know if you've ever done an extended time of disconnection, like digital disconnection. I try to build it into my rhythms every year. And even that doesn't seem like enough. But I'm always amazed when I do it. By the first couple of days, it feels like what I imagine what substance withdrawal must feel like. So like you're almost twitching. You're trying not to respond to every urge to grab that device and to check your updates and notifications. And then pretty soon you're almost haunted by the strange silence, the absence of beeps and buzzes. And eventually a kind of slowing settles in over your soul. You know, we live in a world of unprecedented distraction. Our devices have us programmed uh, to, to, to welcome and even crave interruptions. But eventually the problem of distraction becomes more than something that just happens to us. It begins to define our identity. We become distracted people. We begin to flit from one thing to the next, even if there's no beep to summon us. We become so shaped by our distractions that we lose our ability to focus. And one of the byproducts is that when we become distracted, we lose our ability to think deeply, to put the proper things in the proper priority. What Paul said of the unbelieving Jews of his day would likely be said of many of us today. He says, I, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Many Christians are excited about God, but because of distractions, we have this diminished ability to think deeply about him, to truly know him as he is. And more and more of us are finding that, that we just can't stop long enough to read our Bible. We just can't sustain our attention long enough to study God's word. We can't find the time to meet with our Father in prayer. And where prayer used to be the first activity of the day, we now begin our daily routine by checking email or text messages. And as a result, a recent widespread survey of millennials and Gen Zers has described our modern time as the anxious age. 
Survey results showed an, an unprecedented anxiousness about important decisions, feeling pressured to succeed, experiencing uncertainty and deep loneliness, mental health issues, and fear about the general state of the world. Anxiety is rampant. And this can be traced back to overwhelming amounts of distraction. I truly believe that we as a people can decide what to normalize and what to neglect. And in too many cases, we've normalized distracted, distraction and neglected our souls. And so I'd like to propose something different for 2024. Here's my big idea today. This year, let's normalize stillness and neglect distraction. And so I wanna take us to a passage today in Luke chapter 10. It's a familiar story about two sisters named Mary and Martha, both close friends of Jesus. There are many ways to kind of categorize people in the world. There are, you know, cat people and dog people. There are spenders and savers. There are thinkers and feelers, conservatives and liberals. There are people who love to get up early in the morning, and there are people who hate people who love to get up early in the morning. There are people who love football. There are people who love Taylor Swift. And, and despite popular opinion, those aren't the same people. There, there are people who like country music, and there are normal people. And I could go on and on. But, but another way that you can divide the world up into groups is there are Mary types, and there are Martha types. And so I want to read you the passage today in Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 38. It says, Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and she said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. So, so, so Mary types are kind of quiet and they're reflective and they're deep and they have a strong kind of natural pull toward the value of contemplation. These folks are often type B personalities. They wonder why other people are in such a rush all the time. They, they want to experience life with mindfulness and depth. And then there are Martha types. Busy, active, achievement-oriented. You, you love the challenge of accomplishment and, and really enjoy being pushed almost to the limits. This is normally a type A personality. Martha is a kind of patron saint of multitasking, <laughs> trying to simultaneously get the meal ready and get the house cleaned up and listen to spiritual teaching in the other room and order others around. This strikes you as a way of life that ought to be lived. <laughs> we can sometimes fall into a trap kind of in this passage today even, painting one of the sisters as good and one as bad, one as right and the other as wrong, as if somehow Jesus is all about being and never about doing. But, but there's a problem with that theory. You see, there are all these other pesky places in Scripture where Jesus has quite a lot to say, not just about being, but about doing. In fact, Jesus often told stories about workers, and in one of them, the parable of the talents, it's the high achievers who get commended, and the laid-back passive guy is the one who's called wicked and lazy. In Matthew 28, Jesus tells a story where a father says to his two sons, go work in my vineyard, and there, there's a son who decides, I don't want to work. Work is doing. I just want to be, and that son doesn't fare very well in Jesus' story. 
The passage just before this one in Luke 10 is the story of the Good Samaritan. The one who did the hard work of compassion is the hero of the story, while those who chose not to act are the villains. Jesus himself said, my food, his food, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. When Jesus called his first disciples, part of the call was to come and to be with him, but the second part was to be sent out into ministry and mission and do. And so let's put to rest this idea that, that Jesus' only point here is all about being and never about doing. This is not a story about Mary Good and Martha Bad, but there is something very important here for us to learn. And so I want us to start at the beginning today, and I want to make some observations as we look back through this text. Look back at, at, at verse 38. Jesus and his disciples came to this village, and it says, Martha welcomed him into her house. Uh, the implication is that Jesus would be spending some time there, probably spending the night, maybe a few, few nights. And the, the, the obligation to provide hospitality in this part of the world, in this culture, was very, very strong. Travelers, in any capacity, were dependent upon the hospitality of private homes uh, in order to survive their travels. And so both of these women uh, were unmarried. They, they had a brother named Lazarus. Uh, these were Jesus' friends. And their house, we find through the Gospels, their house kind of became his home away from home. These three siblings would continue to be mentioned throughout the Gospels. In fact, he probably stayed at their home in the week leading up to his passion. He loved them, and they loved him. They, they supported his ministry. And so in the same way that Jesus ministered to the multitudes, and he would go out and feed them and care for them, th this family ministered to Jesus and they fed him, and they housed him, and they cared for him. Now, Luke paints a picture of their interactions with Jesus, Mary and Martha, and he takes them one at a time. First is Mary, and he says that she sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Now, this is a very important description because this means that Mary was a disciple, which means Jesus had women disciples, which was actually unprecedented. And so when Luke writes that Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet, the point is not that she was slacking off on her dinner duties. The point is not even that she preferred quiet conversation to the act of helping. The point is she was a disciple. She'd signed up to be a disciple of Jesus, and she's now doing what it is that disciples do. She's spending time with Jesus. She's listening to his teachings. She's applying his words to her life. She made a choice. And, and so I want to frame the rest of this message this way. I want to talk about three marks of an undistracted faith. I think that's what we're going for here. So, so here's the first. It's that when you receive from Jesus first, you can serve others properly. I, I said Mary made a choice. And, and dare I say, you have a choice in this too. You have a choice about how distracted you will live. You have a choice about how often you will disconnect from social media. You have a choice at how frequently you will sit at Jesus' feet. And can you just imagine for a moment if you prioritized regularly sitting at the feet of Jesus, reading his words, listening for his voice, responding to his promptings through his Holy Spirit, talking with the people that he's asking you to talk to, reaching out to the people that he's inviting you to reach out to, filling your life with the practices that he's inviting you to fill your life with. Think about how that posture of receiving from Jesus first 
positions you to serve the people in your life better. Now, by contrast, Martha was in the kitchen, and Luke gives this key information about Martha's condition when he says in verse 40 that she was distracted with much serving. Notice he doesn't say that she was too busy. He doesn't say she was overcommitted. The word he uses here is distracted, and it means to be physically pulled or dragged away from something. And notice, this distracted posture leads to something. It leads to her being what Jesus calls anxious and troubled. She was distracted because she was trying to tend to 30 different things that had become non-negotiables to her while Mary had chosen one thing. Notice, Jesus isn't contrasting the Christian life with the secular life here. This passage has actually been taken out of context. It's been used a lot, especially back in the Middle Ages. The church came to a passage like this and they said, ah, you see here that the difference between Mary and Martha is the difference between the contemplative life of full-time Christian ministry and the secular life. It was used to get people to leave their secular jobs and to come and become monks and, and nuns. You can see how they could do that. They would say, look at this passage. Here it is, Mary, or Martha. She's working her job, but Mary is in full-time Christian service. Mary is doing nothing but concentrating on the word of the Lord. Isn't that what you want to do? So leave the secular. Leave the distraction of your career and just concentrate on Jesus. Here's the problem with that. You read the passage, and if Martha represents anything, she represents a person in full-time ministry. She's not distracted by secular work. She's actually distracted with ministry to Jesus. Everything she's doing here is for Jesus. She's incredibly busy. She's running around like a chicken with her head cut off, but it's all for him. No, this is a rebuke of Christians who are serving Jesus without first spending time with Jesus. And it's not that Martha didn't want to spend time with Jesus or didn't want to listen to him. She certainly did. But she allowed herself to be prevented from doing that by the pressure of providing hospitality. And she felt like she could not sit at Jesus' feet because of all the stuff that she had to do for Jesus. Now, the question is, who told her to provide all that stuff? Because it wasn't Jesus. And so if you want to live an undistracted faith, The first marker is to receive from Jesus first so that you can serve others properly. It's properly. It's serving out of the overflow of your heart. Here's the second marker. It's that when you're distracted from Jesus, your generosity will turn into resentment. See, when Jesus is missing from the equation, what what can seem to be a really good thing can actually distract you from what's best and it can lead you to anxiety and resentment and bitterness and blaming. Like you can almost imagine what's going on in Martha's mind here. She's saying to herself, like Jesus is here. This is the guy who teaches about serving all the time. And who's the one that's serving? Is it Mary serving? No, it's moi. (laughs) And I'm kind of sick and tired of being the one doing all the work. Martha has reached her breaking point. She can't take it anymore. She's irritable with, with incompetence. She's irritable with laziness. She's irritable with people who are not with the program. And so she says, tell her to help me. And notice, she doesn't even refer to Mary by her name. She's like, tell that one over there, tell her to help me. She's an irritable person on the outside because of the inner disharmony on the inside of her. Her generosity became bitterness. But here's the worst thing. 
She blames Jesus. She, she goes right over Mary's head on the org chart with her frustration, and she goes directly to Jesus. She said, Lord, do you not care? Do you not care? Can you imagine asking Jesus that? Jesus like, uh, I created the heavens and the earth. I'm on my way to Jerusalem to die a brutal death to atone for the sins of the world. Like, I would say that I care. Thanks for the ham. Right? But, but when we get into distraction mode, we start bossing God around. You can read it in the text. Do you not care that my sister has left me to serve all alone? She, she's tattletaling. You can tell they're sisters, can't you? That this whole deal started way back when they were little. But, but Martha's question is so telling. It shows us that she's suspicious of God. But it also shows us something deeper. That while she claims here that this is all for Jesus, that all the cleaning, that all the 10 courses of the meal, that getting every dish finished and served at the same time, that no dust bunnies under the couches, that this was all for Jesus. But her response here proves that she wasn't doing it for Jesus at all. She was doing it for Martha. She'd actually become distracted from Jesus and she was now just trying to prove something to herself or something to everybody else by her good deeds. She should have already heard the stories that Jesus can bake his own food. <laughs> just a couple of chapters ago, a little boy came up to Jesus with like a couple of Nutri-Grain bars and Jesus fed you know, high mark stadium-sized crowds. She should have gone in there, she should have sat down and said, hey Jesus, you know what? Everybody's hungry. Can you do that free lunch thing that you do? And I'll be taking here notes here at the Bible study. She doesn't do that. Instead, she nominates herself for something that Jesus didn't appoint her to do in the first place. And then she's frustrated when he doesn't respond to her demands. It's as if Jesus is saying, listen, Martha, I'm a good manager of my people's time. I wouldn't give you 10 things to do if I knew that you could only do three. Like if you have more things to do in a day than a person can humanly get done, I didn't give you that. You gave that to yourself. And then you made all of those things non-negotiable tasks in your little world. And now all those tasks that I never asked you to do are tearing you up on the inside. They're ruining your relationships with other people. And most of all, you're mad at me because I'm not giving you your way. But I didn't give you those things to do in the first place. And you've made them, every one of them now, somehow necessary for your well-being. You've taken something that's supposed to be generosity and it's turned into resentment because you're trying to accomplish a bunch of stuff that I never asked you to do. And you're trying to fool yourself into thinking that you're doing it for me when really you're doing it for you. Have you ever been there? Whew, that hits close, doesn't it? It doesn't even matter if you're a mature Christian, a confident believer, maybe everybody even thinks you're a leader. But if you know deep down that, that you're mad at God, you're doing all this stuff and he doesn't seem to be coming, nobody else knows but you. But in every task that, that, that you've become irritable and it makes you empty inside because you've become distracted from what Jesus wants you to do and you're doing what you want to do because you think it's gonna make you look a certain way. Some of you today are burned out and frustrated doing things that Jesus never asked you to do in the first place. And if you follow the trail of your resentment backwards to the source, you'll see that maybe you became distracted from what Jesus expected you to do somewhere along the way. Because if your assignment wasn't clear and if your motives weren't pure, 
Your head can easily go down this path toward resentment. And then, what was the point of all of it? And so Martha's all worked up. And Jesus replies in verse 41 with, I believe, with affection. He says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. And listen, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion. And I want to just ask you, what picture do you get in your mind there? What, what, what do you imagine Jesus' tone of voice is like? And I want to suggest that I think that it's not Jesus is not speaking with a furrowed brow and he's not giving her the stink eye and the stern lecture when he says, Martha, Martha. I think he's being playful because she's, she's so serious and she's screaming, I've baked you know, 15 dozen cookies and the goat meat was overcooked and I forgot to pick up the wine and she's throwing her tantrum. But she's a friend. And I think Jesus here is just, as a friend, drawing her out. He's saying, Martha, let, let's refocus this energy. He's not trying to add another thing to her to-do list, for heaven's sake, so she can check off, you know, sitting at Jesus' feet. What he's giving her is an invitation into relationship, which brings me to the third marker of an undistracted faith. It's that your love for Christ starts with listening to him. Now, I'm paraphrasing now, but Jesus says, Martha, I know you're freaked out. And Martha, I know you think you've got a million things to do. You're never gonna get them all done. So how about this? How about if we start with, just spend some time with me? Jesus puts it like this. He says, only one thing is needed. Only one thing, not 20 things, not 50 things. In that moment, the one thing needed was to sit and to listen and to be with him. Now, please, there's nothing wrong with being a responsible, action-oriented, get-it-done kind of person. Jesus did not fault Martha for being responsible. Martha's fault is that she was too busy to listen, too distracted to sit at his feet and absorb his presence, too busy living her life to quietly hear what Jesus was saying, too involved with all of her activities and actions that she didn't find time to first listen to the voice of Christ. And so Jesus, he, he taught in an unforgettable way that listening, precedes action. It doesn't replace action, it precedes action. We listen first and then we do. Be Mary first and Martha second. Be, then do. Follow me, said Jesus, and I will make you fishers of men. Be, then do. Receive your invitation, follow me, then receive your assignment. I will make you fishers of men. Jesus is not condemning Martha, he's inviting her to the feast. Mary, he says, has chosen the good portion, and the good portion is Jesus. See, see Jesus is using mealtime language here to instruct her in, in the cooking process. Martha has been preparing food all day, and she's about to give Jesus the good portion of the meal. He was about to get the biggest piece of chicken, and everybody's like, how come Jesus' chunk of cake always bigger than everyone else's? She's like, because he's God, idiot. And so he always gets the chicken leg and the biggest piece of cake. That's the good portion, according to Martha. And what he tells her is this, you know what, Martha, you're trying to give me the good portion, but Mary was wise and humble and teachable and available and present. And I actually gave her the good portion. She got the best feast of all because man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so Mary spent time with me and I taught her. Jesus is her good portion. Jesus is our good portion, one that will never be taken away. So, so what does Mary do? She sits at Jesus' feet and she listens. In the Bible, to be at someone's feet 
meant, meant something extremely important. It meant to be under their authority. So when it says, for example, in the book of Acts that, that, that people were, were out selling their lands and they took their money and their profits and they put it at the apostles' feet, what that meant was that they saw that their money was no longer theirs. It was at the disposal of the apostles. Ownership had transferred and it's now under their authority. There are places in the Bible where God says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool under your feet. See, to be under foot means to be under authority. And so notice Mary is not just simply listening to God's word. She's putting herself at the feet of Jesus under the authority of his word. She has found focused time to submit her mind to the word and to the teachings of God. And so at the feet of Jesus, this is a focused time, but it's also a submissive time. That's what it means to be at his feet. So remember what we said at the beginning, that part of our distracted world is that we have a diminished ability to think deeply. We've settled for shallow thinking. Unfortunately, shallow thinking also leads to shallow living. I believe it's one of the curses of our distracted time. Christians who are called to drink deeply from the waters of God, we settle for skimming and for living shallow and insignificant lives. And so how do we listen to Jesus today? Well, I think there's a variety of ways that God speaks. But here at the outset of this new year, I want to draw us collectively again to sit at the feet of Jesus through regular engagement with his word. I recently read Tim Keller's biography. I found out that he had a Bible teacher who did this exercise with him uh, back in the early 70s, which showed me where my Bible teacher probably got the same exercise that he did with us. But I had a professor one day who came into class and he said, here's your assignment. He gave us one verse of scripture, not a big passage, one short singular verse, like one sentence. And he said, now I want you to get by yourself and I want you to spend 30 whole minutes, not one minute less, 30 whole minutes. And I want you to write down 30 things that you observe in that one verse, 30 observations. So we went off and after about five minutes, I had my list of four observations and I thought, I'm done. And I'm thinking, what am I gonna do with the next 25 minutes? I've seen everything that I could possibly see in that little verse. But after about 10 more minutes, other insights began to come. And then after 20 minutes, the, the real gold started to emerge as I drank deeply from the word of God. And when we got back to that classroom after 30 minutes and shared our most compelling observations from, the, from that particular text, the room was electric. And afterward, my, my professor did a little poll. He said, how many of you got your key insight in the first five minutes of looking at that text? And nobody raised their hand. He said, how many of you got it in the first 10 minutes? Nobody raised their hand. How many got it in the first 15 minutes? A couple of hands went up. Most of them were after that. And the point he said was, Finally, you've listened. And the problem is we don't take time to listen. He said, you can't just run by your Bible for five minutes in the morning for inspiration. That's not sitting at Jesus' feet and listening. That's a selfish approach. That's a distracted approach, but it's not listening. Mary has chosen the good portion. And what will you choose? Let's play this out biblically. After Lazarus died, Mary anoints Jesus' feet with perfume and ointment. You remember that in John 12? And Jesus says an incredible thing about her. People were like, why is she doing that? Why is she putting perfume on you? Why is she wasting all of that expensive money? 
And there's this whole ruckus about how scandalous this is. But do you remember what Jesus says? He says, she's preparing me for burial. What he's saying is that Mary knew he was gonna die. Now, now why is that important? Because Mary, it seems, was the only person on the face of the earth who knew that. If you read the Gospels, Jesus is continually telling his disciples that he's gonna die, he's gonna suffer, that they're gonna go to Jerusalem, and he's gonna give up his life. And they didn't get it. Like when you read John 13 to 15, the very night before the crucifixion, they still don't get it. And when they actually see him dying, they're absolutely stunned. They, they never got it the whole time until it finally happened right in front of their faces. Mary, it seems, was the only one in the whole world who knew that Jesus was gonna die. How did she know? She listened. She was at his feet. You know, we talked about resolutions at the beginning, but how do we resolve in 2024 to make space to sit at the feet of Jesus, to normalize stillness and neglect distractions, as our big idea said? And really, the only way that resolutions stick is if they move from goals into the category of habits, that they become part of your life rhythm. Habits are the small decisions you make and actions you perform every day. According to researchers at Duke University, habits account for about 40% of our behaviors on any given day. In other words, you do a whole bunch of things every day without even thinking of it. Your life today is essentially the sum of your habits. How healthy or unhealthy you are is a result of your habits. How happy or unhappy you are, how successful or unsuccessful you are, it's a result of your habits. James Clear's written a groundbreaking book called Atomic Habits where he breaks down the science of these kinds of behaviors. And he says it this way, he says, the, the process of building a habit can, can be divided into four simple steps, a cue, a craving, a response, and a reward. And your brain runs through these steps in the same order each time you perform an action. And in order to operationalize this, Clear says that to develop a new habit, you have to take a behavior and then go through these four things. You make it obvious with the cue. You make it attractive with the craving. You make it easy, frictionless, and you make it satisfying. That's how you build a habit. And Charles Duhigg added a layer to this in his great book, The Power of Habit. And he talked about these things that he called keystone habits. He, he, these are certain habits that have a disproportionate cascading effect on other areas of your life. And so for many people, exercise is, is one of these keystone habits. And let's just talk about how it cascades. The act of exercising cascades into better habits in other areas of your life. So if you're exercising, you start eating better, which leads to, to eating out less, which leads to the ability to save more money. And exercising leads to more energy, which leads to more productivity at work, and it leads to better encounters in social settings. Exercise leads to stress reduction, which leads to better sleep. And you can see how a keystone habit like exercise then triggers widespread changes in your life. Some other keystone habits that Duhigg notes are things like having family dinners seems to have a cascading effect and making your bed every morning or planning out your days. But, but there's one that we talk about often around here that I believe is the most keystone habit of all. We call it finding your chair. We introduced this concept at Grace back in 2014, almost 10 years ago. We haven't stopped talking about it since. Your, your chair is just that place where you resolve to meet with God in his word every day. And I believe that this one habit cascades with positive impact into every other area of your life. 
Our church was part of a worldwide survey some years ago called Reveal, which found, among other things, that there's one spiritual habit that, that is a kind of magic bullet for spiritual growth. An overwhelming percentage of people who experience regular, meaningful, forward progress in their faith, they all had this one thing in common, and that is this, that they meditated on God's word every day. Not just read it, but meditated on it. I like to describe this like a cow chewing its cud. <laughs> like you let the word of God get into you and you, you think about it and you're chewing on it and bringing it back to the forward of your mind. And you start to see your life then through the lens of the truth of God's word. And so as we start our latest trip around the sun here in 2024, let me challenge you with this next step. It's to make a plan to find your chair and meet with God every day. And that plan should include a when, where, what, and a who. When will you spend time with God? It's, the best, it's best to do it at the same time every day, and I would recommend giving your best time to God. If you're a morning person, do it in the morning. If you're a normal person, do it in the evening. Whatever, just kidding. But give God your best. And then where? Where will you spend time with God? Where's your chair? Maybe it's a chair in your family room before anyone else is awake. Maybe your back room with a great view of the yard. Maybe it's a chair in your office at work where you can spend some quiet time during your lunch break. Maybe it's the front seat of your truck 15 minutes before the rest of the crew arrives at your job site. Where? And make it simple and make it enjoyable and make it repeatable. So if you want to bring your favorite beverage with you, bring some coffee or some tea or flavor water or whatever it may be, make it enjoyable. Or maybe you want to light a candle or have your favorite worship set list dialed up on a, on a speaker there that's, uh, you know, Bluetooth to your phone or whatever. But figure out when, figure out where, then decide on the what. What will you read during your time with God? And I just want to say, we've made this super easy. If you're struggling to find something, head over to whoisgrace.com slash read, and you can find read plans there. You can find our version plans there with go that go with our sermon series. But decide on what. And then finally, who. Who will hold you accountable? Find someone who can walk the journey with you. Do you know personal accountability increases your odds of completing a goal by like 95%. And the goal here, the goal is life with Jesus, the best portion, to sit at his feet more this year. I pray that you'll do it. I love you guys.